For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Heard Tell Show. It's Friday, folks. You've made it. Congratulations. January the 14th, the year of our Lord 2022 is rolling on. We're halfway through the first month. We hope you're well wherever you and yours are across the street around the world. Thank you for taking time to join us on Heard Tell today. A uh, lot to cover, some interesting stuff to get into. Uh, we're going to talk to our buddy, Zeke Webster. Uh, some stuff, legal stuff uh, about sentencing guidelines. Uh, we've had some high-profiling sentences. We're going to get into what life without and with parole should mean. We're going to talk a little social justice, talk a little criminal justice, talk about what justice means and how the law is not really great at defining that. Uh, we'll get into that with our friend Zeke Webster in a little bit. A uh, great charity story to end the end of the program. Also, a warning about the IRS is out there. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk some politics, uh, the current situation with voting legislation. Uh, we think it's probably performative. We're going to turn down the noise on all the things the president and the Congress is saying about voting rights. Um, but first, we're going to talk about salad dressing. No, seriously, we're going to talk about salad dressing. Uh, I know this is a cultural and politics show, but this gets into politics and culture. Just stay with me for a second. Uh, to be specific, French salad dressing, not something I particularly like. I don't like it on my salad. I like it better when you call it fry sauce and use it for French fries. But that's another topic for another day or perhaps for Twitter Supper Club. Over at Reason, uh, Scott Shackford is reading the headline is the FDA finally liberates French dressing from the 72 year old ingredient mandates. Seriously, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which we are uh, well aware of because of COVID and other things, has decided to relax some of its strict rules and allow manufacturers innovation to run wild, if only in the world of French dressing. On Thursday, the FDA will publish a final rule change in the Federal Register that will revoke the 72 year old standard of identity that's in quotes that mandates what ingredients need to be in French dressing in order for it to legally market with that name. The change was requested by the Association for Dressings and Sausages. I don't know that that organization existed, but now I want to be a member. Continuing, a nearly 100-year-old trade group representing this creamy and or zesty sector of the food industry. After a comment and evaluation period, the FDA determined that, quote, that the standard of identity for French dressing no longer promotes honesty and fair dealing in the interest of consumers and revoking the standard could provide greater flexibility in the products manufacturer consistent with comparable non-standardized foods available in the marketplace. Translation, nobody is being tricked by fraudulent bottles of French dressing. And really the only thing the standards do is restrict innovation and creativity with what might've been done with flavors and 
contents. French dressing historically contains tomatoes, olive oil, vinegar, and some other seasonings. And at the time, the FDA established a mandated identity for French dressing in 1950. The new announcement notes the government focused on just three types of salad dressing and mandated their identities in order to legally bear these labels. That's it. Now we live in the fancy world of 2022 where grocery shelves are full. Well, theoretically full. Let's not get into social media memes about empty shelves. That's another topic for another day and for an economist. Let's stick to salad dressing, shall we? Of wild combinations of salad dressings your grandparents never even dreamed of. And these new dressings are not subject to similar standards of identity. The Association for Dressings and Sauces noted in its petition that all this delicious innovation and all those fancy choices happened precisely because those other dressings didn't have four standards. The FDA agrees with his observation, seeing a proliferation, this is in quotes, of non-standardized, pourable dressings for salads with respective flavors, Italian ranch, cheese, fruit, peppercorn, varied vinegars, and other flavoring concepts and compositions, including a wide range of reduced fat, lack, light, and fat-free. Again, consumers are not screaming in despair over the lack of government-mandated identities for all of these other dressings. There's no reason why French dressing should be singled out for stricter identity demands than other dressings. This is all similar to a rule changed by the FDA in 2020 to deregulate the content requirements for frozen cherry pies. Seriously. When the rule changed, reading from Reason, Scott Shackford, when the rule change was announced, it might have appeared as though the FDA was giving frozen cherry pie makers permission to sell crappy products containing hardly any cherries to unsuspected buyers. But the FDA noted that only frozen cherry pies were regulated with these restrictions, not the other forms of frozen fruit pies, nor the fresh pies themselves. And yet consumers were not, in fact, being screwed over by a substandard fruit content of frozen apples or raspberry pies. Consumer power and influence, and more importantly, consumer choice and consumption, has been enough to keep manufacturers honest. There is a similar market response at work here with French dressing. The FDA notes in its final rule that French dressing manufacturers have standardized their products in a way that's even narrower than the FDA identity requirements in response to consumer demands. In other words, U.S. French dressing lovers want a tomato-based sauce with a sweet taste that is reddish-orange in color. That's it. French dressing manufacturers understand that this is what the consumers want and are going to give it to them. Market forces, not the FDA, have standardized the contents of French dressing. The end of this piece is the punchline. One final punchline about how long it takes the FDA to do anything, no matter how inconsequential, like labeling French dressing. The petition by the Association of Dressings and Sauces for deregulation was initially submitted to the agency and will be approved on Thursday was initially submitted in 1998. It only took 24 years to get this rule change. Why open up a culture in politics? We don't understand how much reach government regulation gets into our lives. Imagine a 24-year government process to properly label French dressing. Is that effective government? Is that good government? I don't know. Sometimes we get a little lost in this stuff and we want to use a little lighter topic. Illustrating absurdity can be useful in understanding just how 
out of control some things of government get. And it's not a nefarious out of control. It's just kind of a inertia of creep of bureaucracy. Why in the world is the government and the FDA worried about French dressing in the same time? I get that we want to have some standards on foodstuffs, and a lot of our food rules were actually made back in the early 20th century, late 19th century, where canned foods that were improperly sealed really were killing people, and they were putting in all kinds of funky ingredients that really could hurt you. Uh, There was a demand for that, but that's not the world we live in now. Uh, Consumer protection is a very different beast, but our government hasn't really adapted to it. So we can say it's kind of silly to start out with French dressing as a entryway to talk about regulation, but just think about if that's what it takes to change regulation about French dressing, how much would it take to change regulation that actually affects you? Think of it this way. During the COVID pandemic, a lot of regulations were suspended and put by the wayside in the name of an emergency. Well and good. We should probably ask ourselves, though, if all those regulations and rules and bylaws and whatever the case may be could be set aside for an emergency and we didn't really miss them and people really weren't dying in the streets or wailing at the unfairness of it all. Maybe we shouldn't have had all those to start with. We tend to look at regulation uh, somewhat like a potted plant. We mostly ignore it unless it dies or smells bad. And then we realize we forgot to water it. We do that with our government. We forget that government needs tended to, especially the bureaucratic arm of the government. Bureaucracy creeps and grows and becomes malignant if not tended to. Things like the FDA, how they label salad dressing is kind of a silly topic, but it is an example of what happens when government isn't innovated and it isn't controlled and it isn't managed. We don't need these old standards for things like salad dressing. Our government has more important things to do especially the FDA, who showed themselves to be completely inept, unable to communicate, and unable to function at their basic job when things like COVID-19 hit. Maybe if they don't spend 20 years on salad dressing, they could be more focused on things like vaccines and home testing kits and trying to not let 800,000 Americans die of a disease because of inefficiencies in the way our public health is managed. It's not all their fault. It's not because of French dressing that COVID-19 happened. But these things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. And a government agency that can't get salad dressing right, it's no surprise that they're going to have trouble when there's a real crisis with real lives at stake at hand. So it's a little silly. It's a little bit of a reach. It's a little bit absurd. But there's some truth here. If they can't handle a salad dressing bottle, we sure can't trust them with a major illness. We deserve better government in both cases. More hotel right after this.
Welcome back to Hertel. Let's talk voting rights for just a minute. Uh, the Democratic Party has made a priority of voting rights, and that's obvious with the way elections went down in 2022, with the way the Republican Party has conducted themselves in talking about conspiracy theories and other messes with elections. Uh, elections are important. Well, the Democratic Party has been promising their base a whole lot of election-style reforms. The problem is they have a 50-50 Senate, so the chances of that actually happening without getting some moderates on board and or a few Republicans was nothing. They didn't get any of those moderates or Republicans on board. And lo and behold, here we are. They don't have any electoral reforms, despite a year's worth of rhetoric and noise. Uh, to the point, Washington Post, Democrats hope of finally pushing through voting rights legislation after months of Republican opposition appears to be fatally wounded. Thursday, after Kristen Sinema, the, the senator from Arizona, announced she would not support changing Senate rules that have long allowed a minority of senators to block legislation. Sinema's position outlawed, outlined in a midday floor speech echoed her previous public sentiments, defended the filibuster, the Senate's 60-vote supermajority rule, as a tool to facilitate bipartisan cooperation and guard against wild swings in federal policy. But the circumstances in which she reiterated it? As Senate Democrat leaders prepared to launch a decisive floor debate and less than an hour before President Biden was scheduled to arrive on Capitol Hill to deliver a final forceful appeal for action, put an exclamation point on her party's long and fruitless effort to counter restrictive re Republican past state voting laws. Let's pause right here and stop for a second. We're going to set the election stuff and the actual details of these bills to the side. We will have on experts to talk about those like Jenny Coulter, our election friend who has gone into great detail on this program before about the good, the bad and the indifferent of things like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, like H.R. 1, the For the People Act, other priorities and legislation. Uh, those are detailed things. We'll get into them at another time. What I want to deal with right now, just to turn the noise down on this, is why this is happening today. OK, this is not news. This is not new. Kristen Sinema, Senator Kristen Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin have told the Democratic Party since at least March that they were not going to break the filibuster. And we've had news story after news story, news cycle after news cycle, pundit after pundit, commentator after commentator coming up with some version where they weren't going to say no to this. And both of them were consistent and said no. Now, I understand people want to argue whether they should say no or not. They want to argue about the filibuster. Just the facts on the ground is they said they weren't going to vote for this. And here we are a year later. They're still saying they're not going to vote for this. So what we have here is what we call failure theater. This is the habit of Congress and the Senate and the congressional side is guilty of this, too, where they fail publicly to make it look like they're trying really, really hard. Your actions speak louder than words. I want to ask our progressive friends something because they've been bringing it up because I've been talking to them about it. They're very frustrated here. You have the president going out and talking about what a huge priority this is for him. And yet it's set to the side burner at best for over a year while they went after other priorities. That's fine. That's his prerogative. It's his administration. The Democratic leadership, Chuck Schumer in the Senate and Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House, they can set the agenda any way they want to. They went after Build Back Better. They did COVID relief. They did infrastructure. I understand politically why they did all that. Infrastructure was the one that had the best chance to pass, and it did. COVID-related stuff was going to pass, and it did. So they focused on those things, and then they took a flyer on trying to get the Build Back Better stuff through, which so far to date has failed. They're not going to get it in anytime soon. And with the election looming 
It's not looking good. So why today? Why this week? Why all of a sudden are they talking about this election legislation as if it's the most important? It's very, very simple. It's an election year. They've got to go into these neighborhoods. They've got to go into these districts. They've got to go into these states. They've got to fire up their advocates and their base and their most solid supporters who really, really, really wanted this, and they're not going to get it. So somehow they got to make it look like they did something to try to get it. I call it kabuki failure theater. The Republicans do this too, but this time it's the Democrats. So let's call it what it is. This is an exercise in look how hard we tried. Oh, gosh, darn it. That mean Joe Manchin and that mean Kristen Cinnamon, the mean Republicans, they won't give us what they want, but look how hard we tried. Senator Chuck Schumer is not a fool. He knows whether he has the votes or not. The rule that governs our legislative branch has always been very simple. If you got the votes, you vote. You pass it. He's never had the votes for this. That's why they've never voted on it. Now they're going to force some votes simply to show that they tried really hard. They know it's going to fail. What we do on this program is we turn down the noise. I'm all for hearing out and debating election reforms with folks. Uh, these packages, we don't want to broad brush them. Uh, we talked to Guinea about it back when they first issued them. Things like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act had some really good stuff in it, had some things we disagreed with. H.R. 1 had a lot of really bad stuff in it. And I'm not just talking policy bad. I'm talking about poll workers would not be able to actually implement large sections of it kind of bad. But we should debate those things. They should bring it to the floor. They should debate it. They should hash it out. We should talk about election reform, especially with bad faith actors in the Republican Party and some in the Democratic Party, by the way, who want to change how elections are done. How we vote is very, very important, and it needs to be protected. But it deserves better than failure theater, which is what it's going to get today. I think our progressive friends, because I've been talking to them, they're seeing through this. They're noticing it, and they're not happy about it. And I don't blame them. They were promised one thing. They were soft-pedaled and shell-gamed a whole lot of other stuff, and now they're having their intelligence insulted by acting like this is a priority when they had a whole year to do this, and they put it to the side, and now we're going to have a little failure theater to try to save some face on it. It is obvious what is going on here. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it. They knew they couldn't do it, but they can't admit it, so now we're going to have some kabuki. Kabuki theater is always interesting. Everything you see isn't what actually is going on. And far too often now, that's how our Congress, both the House and the Senate, are conducting themselves. Failure theater is the order of the day because they can go to their fundraisers and say, gosh darn it, we tried so hard. But this is her tell. And we turn down the noise and we get to the information. And we know by their actions that this was not a priority they knew all along they couldn't pass it, and now they're just making a show, hoping that you don't notice. But we do. More Heard Tell right after this.
Uh, it's hard to tell. We're welcome back a friend of ours, uh, Zeke Webster. He's an attorney. He's a public defender. Uh, he is a sometimes contributor at Ordinary-Times.com. Hint, 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 Zeke. We miss you. Get to writing when you get a chance there, when you're not defending the downtrodden and upholding freedom and justice. How are you, sir? I'm doing just fine. How are you? Good. We uh, we did a little back and forth on Twitter. I wanted to get your thoughts on it because I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have. But uh, you were doing what you normally do. You were advocating for legal matters and matters of justice. And you started talking about sentencing guidelines and sentencing standards, especially when it comes to things like life without parole. Just real quickly so you can kind of overview. Let's make sure we got our nomenclature right. Life without parole, what does that specifically mean? What does it mean legally? And is the parlance the way we take that to mean it the way it actually is in the books and in the court of law? Well, it's one of those things where, you you know, you always have to uh, attach an, aster- an asterisk to everything you say about this because criminal law varies a great deal from state to state. And, uh, you know, something can be true in one state, not true in another. But in general, when, when you use the term life without parole, that means that life is exactly what it says it is, that you will never under any circumstances get out of prison uh, so long as that sentence is upheld. So, um you know, you kind of can think of it as a continuum between a death sentence where uh, the state will kill you in prison and life without parole, which is a guarantee that you will die in prison of some other causes than an execution. And, and then below that, you have a life uh, you have life with the possibility of parole where uh, you may die in prison or uh, at some point down the line, usually after uh, a very long period of time that's set up by statute, you may become eligible to be released on parole. Um, and so the main distinction here is that there's, uh, the, the third of those categories is the only one that really leaves any kind of, uh, discretion or any possibility of, uh, the sentence changing in response to what changes in the life of the person sentenced over the course of, uh, a very long period of time in which the sentence is carried out. So let's break this down just a little bit, though, because like you just mentioned, like we've seen in these court cases, this is highly changeable and susceptible state to state. Uh, Federal guidelines are even different because there's no parole system at all. Uh, That has a lot to do with this as well, doesn't it? So even though we're going to kind of talk about it in broad terms, there's a lot of minutia here when you get into the individual states and municipalities. For sure, for sure. Um, you know, I, it's one of those things where I, I can speak with some authority about North Carolina with less authority on any state where I've taken some time to do some research on their sentencing regime and with very little authority at all on any other state. Um, but you do tend to see a, uh, a lot of a lot of things that don't have to be the same from one jurisdiction to another, but nonetheless are areas where a lot of different uh, different places arrive at kind of a similar destination uh, for often similar reasons. Yeah, Zeke Webster, attorney, joining us. All right, so let's let's get into kind of a common trope that we see on social media, something we hear in social media a lot, uh, being tough on crime. I know you push back on this a lot, but I want to give you a little bit of deck to kind of uh, kind of articulate this a little bit further of just because a sentencing guideline isn't life in prison without parole or life with parole or the death penalty or the harshest penalties we got on the books there seems to be this uh, small mindedness that there's no medium of talking the most of somebody's life or the majority of somebody's life 
And there seems to be this argument of, well, to be on tough on crime, you have to take it completely out of anybody's hands to ever review this case ever again, ever. And that's where you start to have some problems with it, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of kind of different angles to take on it. But to begin with, I simply don't believe an eye for an eye. Um, you know, they, they talk to you in law school about uh, the purposes of punishment and theories of punishment and so on. And, you know, part of part of what a Senate, what a criminal punishment is supposed to do is to, in some way, kind of even the cosmic scales that if somebody's done wrong and it caused grievous harm to other people, that they should um, in some way or another be made to suffer to balance that out. And, and I don't think that I, I completely discount that as a purpose to, to uh, do anything. But when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're increasing the amount of suffering in the world. And it, you know, it may be that that provides some sense of, of closure or justice to uh, people who are, have suffered as a result of what the, what the, the crime that took place. But fundamentally, it, it, does not, it, it does not and it cannot undo the harm that was caused. And what it can do is it can make the, uh, you know, it can make life worse for the person being punished, for the family of the person being punished, and sometimes for other people that don't have anything at all to do with um, whatever wrong that was done. And so, like, in that context, if you're looking at sentences of, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that's an extremely long time. That's a life-changing amount of time. And, you know, if somebody... Uh, you know, I just kind of like try to try to anchor it in in my own experience, right? That, you know, if you look at a sentence that in the context of a serious felony, a lot of people might not think of as being all that long, 10 years, right? Well, I'm 35. Right now, I'm a married practicing public defender. And when I was 25, I was a guy waiting tables outside uh, that had just gotten out of college. Um, you know, I think that, you know, the bulk of my adult life has all happened over the span of 10 years and people can grow and change a great deal in that amount of time. And a lot of things can happen that if you're in jail, you miss, you know, if somebody has um, somebody has young children and they go to prison for 10 years, you're, you're basically missing out on all of that child growing up. You're probably going to miss out on the death of the deaths of your parents. Uh, in, a, in a lot of these cases, I mean, you're going to miss out on anything and everything for a very long time. And, and that's above and beyond the fact that as they currently exist, jails and prisons in this country are dangerous, um, brutal places uh, where a, a lot of people have terrible things happen to them in prison that are not supposed to be part of their punishment. Uh, it is a, a national disgrace that is the extent to which we turn a blind eye to uh, sexual assault and other violence that happens inside prisons. And, um, you know, I, I think that. Any, anybody listening to this, if you were faced with the possibility of doing 10 years in prison, you would regard that as an awful, awful thing that you would do just about anything to avoid. And so I think given all that, you know, you can't look at 10 years and say, oh, well, that's just a slap on the wrist. I mean, it's, it's not, even for very, very serious crimes that caused very, very serious harm to other people. What do you think the disconnect is? I, I mean, I know that's just people spewing on social media. That's that's not real life. We talk about that a lot. But there is a overriding sentiment. I've cert- I'm sure you've ran into it uh, in the course of your work, because when people hear you're a lawyer, especially the public defender, I'm sure you get those kind of questions a lot. Where's the disconnect? I know we want 
uh, we confuse, you know, the law doesn't really have a good answer for what's justice and what's retribution and those kind of more philosophical questions because you got to put this stuff in black and white. But it has to fall into those realms because we're dealing with people here. How do, how do you, where do you think the disconnect there is where we start thinking, okay, convict, and we stop thinking person? Well, I think that you just hit at the heart of it is that it is, I, it is much easier to think about these things if you can, if you can create an understanding of the world for yourself where there's two kinds of people, you know, there's good normal people that would never commit a serious crime. And then there's, you know, there's criminals, there's convicts, there's, there's brutal monsters that just need to be separated from the rest of us. And the thing about that is that in many, in many, 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 many cases, people don't realize how much, uh, uh, you know, a otherwise totally normal person might wind up doing if they were put in the wrong situation on the wrong day at the wrong place and time. And, you know, I mean, when you, when you do the work that I do, you find yourself, you know, meeting people in person that have been accused or that have been convicted of you know, rapes and murders and homicides. And almost every time you sit down in a room to talk to somebody that has that in their past, and they don't actually come off that different from anybody else you ever sat down in the room to talk to. Uh, that, you know, fun, I'm a big believer that fundamentally we are all human. We are all um, complicated. And that, uh, you know, the, the moral value of a person is more than the worst thing they've ever done. And, you know, when you when you dig into it, it's it's very messy and uncomfortable. But ultimately, that's the the truth that we deal with. And so that's why I often think that whether or not somebody is guilty is a sometimes a less interesting question than what we're going to do about it and whether what we're going to do about it is something that will actually make the world a better place. Yeah, we're talking to Zeke. Webster, our friend, attorney, uh, and we're going to get into more of that. These sentencing guidelines we're going to talk about uh, things like the Arbery case, which we had a little bit of a bumping of heads on. And we'll discuss that as an example of this and a lot more right after this on her tell. Welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donson. I'm still joined by Zeke Webster, uh, our attorney friend who's becoming a regular on the program. We love to have him because he is on the sharp, pointy end of our criminal justice system, doing the public defender work, God's work down there. Uh, we were talking about these cases. Let's talk about a big case that got a lot of national attention, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey. Um, I don't want to deal with the bad faith actors because anybody with a functional frontal cortex saw this video, looked at this case, and knows exactly what happened here. Um, I was good with the verdict. I wrote about the verdict, uh, the people who showed no remorse and the two people I think that was most responsible for the crime, the one that pulled the trigger and the one that, in my opinion, and I think the evidence boarded out the father that masterminded this whole thing, got the life without parole. Uh, the other person that was there that showed remorse and cooperated, he got uh, mercy as it was with the possibility of parole. Uh, but even within that, I found it, I felt that was a just sentencing you still had a little bit of pushback because you seem to have a consistency when it comes to life without parole, however. Yeah, 
I mean, you know, I, I unsurprisingly, I'm also an opponent of the death penalty. And, um, you know, I often have an attitude when you look at, you know, somebody like, say, um, like Dylan Roof, right? Uh, people that commit extremely heinous crimes, mass murders, people that target innocent people for absolutely no good reason at all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My attitude is generally that, you know, if we're going to have the death penalty, I guess this is the right sort of person to apply it to, but I don't think that we should have the death penalty. And that's how I feel about life without parole for, for this case. I mean, I, I'm not going to spend any of my time whatsoever defending uh, the McMichaels or, or minimizing what they did, because I don't think there's any honest way to do that. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that it is particularly likely that over the course of however much time these men have left on earth, that they are likely to change in a way that would make me feel good about them being released from prison. But the thing is that we don't right now know the future. And so, you know, Travis McMichael's 35 and it may well be that he's going to go to his deathbed uh, having not shown any genuine remorse, having not shown any meaningful change, or at least not enough to really change how we should feel about him as a person. But there are a lot of stories out there of, you know, people in their, you know, often as teenagers or in their early 20s who wind up going to prison uh, for their entire lives because of something that they did when they were very young and something very, very awful that they did when they were very young who really do manage to accomplish what we would think of as rehabilitation in prison, who, who do everything that you could imagine a person doing to atone, to uh, accept responsibility, to change who they are, and to have a positive impact on the world. And, you know, when you've, when you've got somebody that maybe 30 or 40 years down the road really has uh, achieved that kind of reformation, I think that there should still be at least a chance at, at eventual freedom for somebody like that. And so, you know, I think that if we were to leave open the possibility of parole for the McMichaels, I, I don't think that they would ever actually deserve it. And I don't think they would ever actually get it, but I don't know that for sure. And, um, you know, I, I don't like that there's no possibility left open for any kind of change far down the road in the future. And, and I also don't like that this is all taking place in, a, sta in a, uh, a set of statutes that remove the possibility for um, leaving this kind of thing open. Because, you know, there, there are a lot of other cases where people have done, in my view, still very, very serious, grievous crimes, but crimes that I think are, are less inexcusable than what the McMichaels did, who still face mandatory life without parole. And when you set the system up so that there's no off-ramp, there's no way to account for the complications of life or, or any kind of way in which people might grow or change or try to atone, you wind up with injustice. And um, that's the real thing that I object to. Yeah. And I, I'll just be honest here. This isn't a philosophical argument. This is just my feelings on it. Uh, I feel a lot of like when you're talking about this, like I do on the death penalty, I can get like 99% of the way there. You know, I, I yeah. can almost get there. And then you get, you know, the literal baby killers of the world. You get a war criminal. You get a, a McMichaels who just straight up lynch a guy in broad daylight and expect to get it. You get those outlier cases. Um, is this where we need to go back to what you were talking about before of trusting the 
I know we hate to say trusting the system because that sounds, you know, Pollyannish, but this is why you have a parole review board. This is why you have people designated outside of the criminal justice system to come in later and review these things 10, 15, 20 years later. Is, is it just a matter of trust or is it a matter of not understanding how a parole review works down the road that, hey, they're not just letting criminals out, although you can probably find examples of that. That's their job to review these things after the fact, after there's been sometimes decades of new information and personal change in these people. Yeah, and I guess my my attitude would be that anytime you set up an institution like a parole board, it's going to make errors in both directions. Um, you know, it's going to both release people that maybe should not have been released, and it's going to keep people in prison that really should have been released. And you know, my my attitude, and this may just be my kind of public defender spirit on it, is that I always feel more moved by somebody who remains in a cage that really, really shouldn't be than by the prospect of letting a, um, you know, a, a moral monster out after several decades. Um, and, and the thing is that when you, you know, this is, it's, you can't make a system just for the really, really exceptional cases. You can't, you can't design these absolute punishments of life without parole or the death penalty and ensure that they're only ever going to apply to the absolute, absolute worst of the worst. And in practice, what, we, what we've seen for many, many, many years of this process is that, you know, the people that get sentenced to death are overwhelmingly poor people, people of color, people that um, did not have effective legal representation at the trial level. And, you know, those aren't the, the things that should be determining these results, but in practice they are. And, you know, when you, when you set things up and you say that, well, for this charge, it's mandatory life without parole, you know, sure, you're going to get some people that get mandatory life without parole who really are never, ever, ever going to be safe to release from prison. But you're also going to get a bunch of people that are going to have their entire lives taken away where there really wasn't what needed to happen in their case. Yeah, Zeke Webster joining us. One last quick question for you to kind of put a bow on this. Uh, we're talking some big picture stuff. This is, you know, total criminal justice sentencing hearing. This is a lot of stuff that's outside of uh, the normal person's reach to really do much about other than talk about it. Uh, where do you think we start with trying to make something like this better? Is it on the institutional side, doing prison reform, parole reform, things like that? Or is this another example where we'd probably be better going after uh, the prosecutor side of it, where they're more, you know, most of those are elected officials. You can put down sentencing guidelines. You can put pressure on that way. We've seen some high profile cases like out in Colorado where uh, they had to come back and revise things after public pressure. What should the average citizen uh, be focusing on there? Is it the institutional side or is it the official side, do you think? I mean, I think it always has to be a mix of both. I mean, people should vote. They should make informed votes in uh, district attorney elections, elections for sheriff, um, things like that. Uh, and um, in particular to this kind of stuff, people should, uh, you know, people should not try to get out of jury duty. I mean, if it's if it's a, a hardship that is not, uh, you know, I understand for some people it really, really, really is an, an unacceptable hardship to get, to um, serve on a jury. but. You know, I, I think that uh, that's a uh, the jury is a really uh, powerful institution of uh, self government if we allow it to be, and um, for it to work the way it ought to work, that requires people to really take it seriously and to serve and to serve thoughtfully. And uh, you know, that's that's 
I think if I were, uh, if, if I have to ask one thing of people that are listening, uh, that'd probably be the most concrete one. Just try and get on a jury the next time you get called and think about this kind of stuff. As with everything else, the complexities of the legal system, if we kind of do the little things, we might actually do some good with it, right? Uh, yeah. Zeke Webster, uh, we appreciate you. He's a regular on the program. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Don Zico. And he is going to be doing all kinds of great stuff for us in the future at Ordinary Times and on Twitter advocating. He does that. And although we disagree some, sir, I appreciate your consistency in your viewpoint. And uh, I hope you're doing well. Appreciate your time today. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Talk again soon, sir. Appreciate your time. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, if you're like our household, uh, January means you start getting things in the mail like W-2s, like proof of insurance forms uh, to satisfy the ACA Act. Uh, it's almost tax season, folks. Uh, so this headline is something that you want to file away and bookmark and just keep in the back of your mind as we start heading into the spring and tax filing system. Uh, from CNBC, the IRS is in crisis. Here's what to know as taxpayer advocates warn of potential for refund delays in 2022. Peace goes on to say, uh, quote, in December, the agency had 6 million unprocessed individual tax returns and 2.3 million unprocessed amended individual returns. According to the report, it also has a backlog of 2 million unprocessed employee quarterly tax returns and roughly 5 million pieces of taxpayer mail from April of last year, many taxpayers reminded many taxpayers remained without refunds some nine months after filing. Additionally, America visited the IRS website to learn the status of their tax refunds more than 630 million times in 2021, a number that reflects deep frustration with the speed and efficiency of the tax collection agency, according to the report. The IRS is in crisis. This is a quote and needs to apply resources to its core mission, processing these returns and paying the corresponding refunds. The watchdog reports the IRS is urging Americans to file their 2021 tax returns online and as soon as possible to avoid delays in processing and receiving refunds. Quote, planning for the nation's filing season process is a massive undertaking, and the IRS teams have been working nonstop these past several months to prepare, said IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddig in a Monday statement. Quote continues, the pandemic continues to create challenges, but the IRS remind, reminds people they are important steps they can take to help ensure their tax returns and refunds don't face processing delays. If you will recall, uh, there was multiple extensions some folks had until July and later to file their taxes. This threw chaos into the system. Plus, the IRS, like everybody else, was dealing with COVID-related things, people out of work, people working remotely that didn't normally work remotely. Uh, it caused chaos in the system. They still have a lot of leftover from last year. And now here comes the wave for this year. Folks, plan accordingly. You might not get that tax return back in a couple of weeks. Uh, it may be longer. Do your taxes as early as you can. Get in front of the system. Try to take care of you and yours. Remember, all government entities... Just treat them like the DMV 
And then that way you're pleasantly surprised if they function efficiently, quickly, and politely to you. Better to be surprised. Prepare for the worst. Hope for the best, especially when it comes to your taxes. But please, for God's sakes, make sure you pay it. The one thing they're efficient about is hunting you down if you don't. More hotel right after this. Tell show, you know, we always try to end on a lighter or happier note when we possibly can here at Herd Tell, and this is one of those. We love it. As you know, the NFL playoffs are upon us if you sports ball. Uh, this is a great little story from Pro Football Talk, NBC Sports, uh, quoting the Pittsburgh Steelers were teetering on the precipice of missing the playoffs. We need that good NFL film music, you know, the orchestrated da-da-da-da-da. We need that kind of music for this, but it's a one-man show. We have limitations. Back to the piece. The Pittsburgh Steelers were teetering on the precipice of missing the playoffs due to the impending tie in the final regular season game of the 2021-22 season. If Sunday night's game between the Los Angeles Chargers and Las Vegas Raiders ended in deadlock, both of those teams would make the playoffs while the Steelers would go home. Daniel Carlson's 47-yard field goal gave the Raiders a win, sent the Chargers home, and finally secured the final AFC playoff spot for the Pittsburgh Steelers. As a thank you to Carlson, Steeler fans have been making donations to charity Carson's has been affiliated with for making the kick that kept their season alive. At Steelers, please thank your fans who are generously donating to charities I've been involved with. Carlson wrote on his Twitter account, I'll add some links below for any others who would like to join in the fun. Playoffs, all caps. Carlson linked to the Boys and Girls Club of Southern Nevada, the after-school All-Stars of Greater Las Vegas, and the A-Team Ministries, which provides support for families dealing with pediatric cancers. Fans of the Buffalo Bills made similar efforts to thank Andy Dalton, Tyler Boyd, and the Cincinnati Bengals in the 2017 as their victory over the Baltimore Ravens in the final weeks of the season ended their 17-year playoff drought. Pretty cool story. Uh, we sometimes knock on sports fans for losing their minds. This is a case where they use their enthusiasm for a good cause, brought some smiles, got some money to some good causes. Well done, everybody. That's the kind of sports fan you ought to be. And we like those kind of stories here on Herd Tell. Uh, that'll do it for Herd Tell for today. However you're watching and or listening, make sure you share us on your social media. We sure appreciate it. Uh, all those platforms, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening, those have share buttons. Uh, use it. Put us on your social media. Let people know our little programs worth checking out. They also have comments and likes and things like that. Please fill those out. It only costs you a couple clicks and a few seconds of your time, but it means a lot to us. We really appreciate it. If you comment on any of the platforms that we're on, we will try to respond to you. If you want to contact us directly at Hertel Show on Twitter, Hertel Show at gmail.com. Write us a little note, uh, questions, comments, epistles, comments, whatever you got. Be nice. Keep your bearing. Love to hear from you. Might even add it to the show. You never know. Uh, the feedback from this week 
has been so impressive from the really important and heavy stuff like Morgan Stevens interview on Monday to some of the lighthearted stuff. We sure appreciate hearing from you. We'll keep doing it as long as you keep watching and or listening. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well, we hope you're well fed and we hope you have a great weekend. We will see you on Monday right back here for more Herd Tell. Take care, y'all. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.